and welcome back to Comics Over Time, where we shine a spotlight on classic comic stories and the TV shows or big screen blockbusters they inspired. We'll look to connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures, examining where the adaptation followed the comics closely and where they decided to go their own way. And when we're done, we'll try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? My name is Dwayne, and with me, as always, is my good buddy, Dan. Dan, how's it going? Going really well. Looking forward to this. I uh, had a really good time reading some of these this week. You know, even as we're nearing the release of the third Guardians of the Galaxy movie next month, our look back at the MCU has to continue. So, sneaking it in just in time, we're actually now up to the second movie of the MCU's third phase, which happens to be Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. There we go. Yes, so back to Cosmic Marvel. Uh, before we dive in and talk about what was in the stack this week, we're going to talk about some comics news. And unfortunately, we had uh, we had another big loss in comics this week. Al Jaffe, the Mad Magazine legend, has passed away at 102. Uh, it was reported... On Twitter, actually by Tom Hongis, uh, who is the dedicated to the Eisner Award-winning Hogan's Alley. He says, I'm very sad to report the great Al Jaffe has died. He had celebrated his 102nd birthday just last month. An incredible legend, rip to the giant of cartooning. And, uh, 102? In reading huh? about this. Holy mackerel. Yeah. He was, he's been around a while. And what I didn't know is, along with being known for Mad Magazine, Al Jaffe also contributed to Timely Comics and Atlas Comics, which eventually would become the juggernaut Marvel Comics. Yes, absolutely. Uh, One of the uh, people that I saw something on this about was actually Weird Al uh, tweeted about this. Uh, He is a huge fan of Al Jaffe and it, in fact, wrote a, um, a little article that appeared in Mad Magazine in April of 2022, where he talked about how much of an influence uh, Al Jaffe was. And in fact, there he talks about the fact that, uh, that he remembers finding this back issue from 1966 of Mad Magazine, where Al Jaffe had recreated the Hank Ketchum, Dennis the Menace, only with Dennis the Menace walking in to show his mom a skull saying, look what I found in Mr. Wilson's head and uh, talked about it being really twisted and violent and made him laugh uncontrollably. And that that's probably where he gets his violent and uh, twisted uh, parody ideas from, or what, what kind of spurred the idea of doing parodies in that way, because it just really tickled his funny bone. Looking into Marvel Unlimited, the uh, the website seems to be working again, so we can actually see uh, what's new this week in Marvel Unlimited. There's a c- couple number ones, Joe Fixit and Shang-Chi, Master of the Ten Rings. Number ones are out this week. There's some issue threes of Planet Hulk, Worldbreaker, Secret Invasion, and the Fantastic Four. But you wanted to spotlight uh, the other number one that's available this week, and it is the Scarlet Witch. 
yeah, Steve Orlando and Sarah Pacilli. It looks like it's just a beautiful comic. And also, for those of us who, you know, kind of are, are Moon Knight fans, it almost seems like uh, they're playing in the same sort of a sandbox. Because from the solicits, essentially, it looks like Wanda's going to end up sort of setting up this witchcraft shop type of thing where people can kind of end up in there when they're in times of need. And it's going to be kind of almost like the Midnight Mansion that Moon Knight has, only with less Moon Knight and more magic. So That, that sounds kind of fun. The, uh, the cover that I'm looking at here looks really cool. That's Russell Dodderman, who we've seen him on the Thor stuff before. And then Sarah Pacelli on the inside art. I don't know if you remember like the the first images of Angela, the angel, that we saw when we were reading the Ga- Guardians of the Galaxy stuff. Sure. That is her. Okay. So two two really, really good artists doing the cover and the inside stuff. So right. a book we is go. worth taking a look at. That that does seem pretty pretty interesting. And you've got a recommendation mm-hmm. for us this week as well. Yeah. Yeah, I may well be pulling through a lot of the stuff that I bought at C2E2 for a while because bought a ton of independent books and things like that. And one that I just finished this week that I really liked called Breath of the Giant. It's a 150-page standalone comic. Tracks the journey of these two children who are trying to find a mythical giant on this journey uh, so that they can resurrect their mother. It's got beautiful art, beautiful story. It's done by a guy named Tom Morel. It's evidently his first comic book. Uh, he's a French creator, and this is from a publisher called Fairsquare that was at C2E2. They're bringing a lot of comics um, from, in many cases, uh, underrepresented, um, like, sort of facets, both of, of like, demographics and also different regions uh, to American audiences. So this is a really fun comic. It is translated over, so it's in English uh, and the like. Bunches of good foreign comics out there. So well worth giving some a try. Um, Dwayne's going to put the link into the show notes if you want to go out and check out Fair, Squ- um, Fair Square uh, and Breath of the Giant. You can find it there. All right, that sounds good. Thank you for the recommendation. Why don't we jump in and let's talk about uh, the, the stack for this week to get us ready for Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. What what did we read this week? I I kind of just got you a this buffet big... of of comics. Sure, that's what it felt like. I I was full by the time I finished these books. Yes, it's either a buffet or I was just pulling random stuff out of the fridge and feeding you whatever was around. I'm not sure, but we we read three different groups of books. We read three Thors: one thirty two, one thirty three, and two twenty eight. We read about. Eight Avengers comics, 112 through 115 and 120 to 24. And then we read four Strange Tales comics, 178 to 181. Okay, so I, and we talked a little bit about this last week. There was, each of these kind of had a character specifically from Guardians of the Galaxy that we pulled, that that they were kind of centered around. But was that like the only reason or why why did we, why did you pick these sets of books so the early thors are just kind of cool because those are stan lee and jack kirby so getting in at least a few of those every once in a while is always is always good 
But also, that's the first appearance of ego in 132 and 133, and it's its origin in 228. So that's a pretty good introduction to who ego is in the comics, which may or may not be who he is in the movies. I don't want to say too much quite sure. yet. Uh, Avengers, those books were the first appearance of Mantis, and it gave us at least the beginnings of her origin. And I think in some ways... This is another of those from what weird beginnings type of things. You would not think that she would be an important cosmic character looking at where these came from and who and who this character was at the yeah. beginning, right? And then Strange Tales 178 to 181. We're going to be seeing a lot of Adam Warlock over the next few weeks leading into Guardians 3. 180 is the first appearance of Gamora. And it's also these these Strange Tales books are kind of a good introduction to Adam Warlock and some of that side of the cosmic universe. So that's why I sent them to you. I'm hoping that with all of these different creators and weird storylines jumping all over, you're not just going to yell at me. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Before we dive in and talk about these comics in particular, we usually do a creator profile, and I, it looks like we've we, you've got somebody singled out for us for this week. Who are we talking about in this week's creator profile? Sure. So the Avengers books that we're going to be reading from 112 to 124, those were written by a guy named Steve Englehart, and he is an interesting dude. He actually started out um, in comics in the early 70s. He'd been a conscientious objector to Vietnam and actually was um, released from service from the military. First tried to get into comics as an artist and even worked for Neil Adams and Dick Giordano in their studio. But he relatively quickly found his place instead as a writer and really never looked back. So Engelhart passed the first maybe couple years of his career he didn't do any more art. He, he has some inking credits and stuff, but mostly settled in as a writer and was fantastic. He actually helped to create the first sort of unofficial DC Marvel crossover uh, when he started writing. And this sort of shows you who this guy is, that within a year or so of breaking in at Marvel, he and his buddies were hanging around figuring out a way that they could take them their own characters stick them into Marvel and DC comic books, and then have them wander around doing a backstory that starts in, essentially, Amazing Adventures, which is a Marvel book that was written by Englehart, where him and some of his friends are going to this sort of like little parade. And then in a DC book a month or so later, the same characters are talking about going to that parade or are at that parade. And then back at Marvel another month or so later, it finishes up in a Thor book where, so it goes from Amazing Adventures to JLA and then back over to Thor, and it's the same story. So what they did, and they did not ask if they could do this, because Marvel and DC <laughs> hated each other. They'd never allowed Sure. This didn't they, seem like something they, they would sign off on. Just sort of wove it all together, and nobody noticed until it was too late. So they, in the early 70s, implied that somehow there was a shared universe there between the two, even before there ever were any real crossovers. Um, fans loved it. 
Um, he also snuck Mantis, who we're going to be looking at today, into DC after he moved there because he created Mantis, wanted to keep using the character, so he just sort of renamed her and changed a couple of things and just kept using her over at DC. His Batman and Mr. Miracle runs were some of the favorites of mine as a kid. His Madame Xanadu comic with Marshall Rogers was the very first DC direct market only title. Um, I was only actually 12 years old when that came out and it had this sort of salacious poster or centerfold of Madame okay, Xanadu yes. in it. So still one of my favorite comics. I still <laughs> have it. Um, okay. But Engelhart, though, is just absolutely brilliant. He's a loose cannon. He was always fighting with his editorial. He quit both Marvel and DC more than once over various things. He was very concerned with getting credit for the things he created. He was very concerned with getting paid decently. And he was willing to walk if he didn't get the things he, he wanted. And then he'd go off and write books or do something else. He also seemed to revel in doing these things he wasn't supposed to. He's open about the fact that a number of his ideas were conceived while he was on acid. Normally hanging out with Jim Starlin on acid seems to be uh -huh. what the two of them did a lot. Um, and two of his creations, though, Star-Lord and Mantis, ended up in the Guardians of the Galaxy. And he also uh, co-created Shang-Chi with Starlin, um, whose work we're looking at this week as well in the Strange Tales books. So somebody who'd been around for a long time, he is unbelievably like important to the story of comics and the adaptations in the movies have in many cases kind of followed him. In fact, that Batman run from the seventies with him and Rogers actually is sort of indirectly credited in some ways as the source material for the first Batman movie because that was actually, he actually wrote one of the initial scripts of it, and it like it the, follows kind of along it. Like the Michael Keaton Batman, you mean? The Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson Batman. Sure. Yeah. That is, Correct. that is great. That is a fantastic movie that I now definitely want to just go and watch again. So, yep. but we have a podcast to do. We've got some books to talk there about here. I, I will get to that later. All right, Engelhart seems like a pretty pretty interesting dude. Thank you for that on the creator profile. Let's dive in and let's talk about Thor 132, 133, and 228 and Ego because this was this was right. actually really interesting. And um, th these are from quite a ways back, aren't they? These books were published in 1966 and... They're some of the earliest Thors in his own title, because Thor actually started out in Journey to Mystery, and then it eventually became Thor. Um, written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby. It's inked by Vinnie Coletta, who most people who are big Jack Kirby fans will tell you is the worst inker of Jack Kirby. They, <laughs> they hate Coletta's inks. More when he's at DC than when he's at Marvel, but nonetheless... Lettered by Stan Rosen and the colorist, we don't exactly know because it was not it was not actually documented by Marvel who did the coloring back then. Then the last book, two twenty eight, is actually from nineteen seventy four, written by Jerry Conway, drawn by Rich Buckler and Joe Sinnott, lettered by Joe John Constanza, and colored by Stan Goldberg. So, those are our books: two early ones, one slightly slightly older one, and 
In these three stories, though, all from the classic years of Marvel, we're going to see the first appearance of Ego the Laban Planet, and then eventually we're going to learn his tragic origin story. So, Thor starts out actually in issue number 132 by facing off against an invasion of Earth by a group called the Regellians, right? Mm-hmm. He defeats their super robot as he's like, you know, he attacks their, their mothership and they send this robot that can't be defeated. He defeats it and then starts visiting with them for whatever reason. And actually they're like, you know, you could beat us up, but there's a bigger problem to deal with in the galaxy. And he agrees to go and take a look at this threat out in a black galaxy in exchange for them calling off their invasion if he can defeat whatever's there. So Thor is then given an accompanying Regalian recorder robot. Uh, if we ever read the Hercules miniseries from the 80s, he also has a Regellian recorder robot. They're kind of awesome. Um, okay. I, I love That's those fine. recorders. But um, they actually find this massive bioverse with a living planet at its core. At the end of that, we just sort of see a big one-page uh, picture sort of of the planet. And it's this planet with a face in it and then all sorts of weird stuff going on around the outside. Nope. It's in kind of black and white and it's, uh-huh. it's actually a collage. So we'll talk about that a little bit. It's very different than normal comic book art. Then in 133, um, Ego sees them and welcomes them, brings them down to his surface and actually changes the planet's surface to suit them, making it look more sort of like Asgard. At a certain point, he then declares that he intends to fight and defeat Thor in combat, which will prove his worthiness to conquer the other realms of the galaxy. So then he'll go out and start wreaking havoc. Ego takes the shape of these weird large antibody things and gets a little bit trippy. And Thor manages to defeat all of that. And eventually he releases his massive thunderbolt, causing Ego to admit defeat and sort of just give up his hopes of, of conquest. As a note, while all this is happening, the Regellian invasion is actually underway, and the Regellian like leader or princess or whatever, Tana Nile, has been wandering New York, talking to cabbies and policemen or whatever, <laughs> trying to find someone who has the authority to surrender the planet to her, right? <laughs> yep. So she ends up in this police station, and nobody really, they all just think she's crazy, because she's just this person with a big head wandering around the city. While that's going on, Jane is also in Europe visiting with some folks who, interestingly enough, are looking for someone called the High Evolutionary. We're just going to put a pin in that until next yeah. or two weeks from now. But yeah. That um, seem, seems like that might be important eventually. What's interesting is, because we're getting ready for um, GOT3, or Guardians of the Galaxy 3, and all of these early... St- stories have so many ideas in them we're reading 32 and 33 this week and then just next week or next time we read it'll be thor 134 and 135 which is the start to the high evolutionary so the two big bads from both of those movies were created in the space of like three months by lee and kirby back in the 60s so anyway for what we're dealing with this week though back to ego in thor 228 he returns, and we find out that actually Ego was once just a normal mortal scientist on this planet. With the sun going supernova, this, this scientist named Egros has put in plan or put in motion this plan to save his people 
by feeding all, the entire population into this massive sort of vault with all sorts of suspended animation tubes. They're going to hang out down there and just sort of hide in a suspended animation until the flare's gone and the planet returns to safe and then they'll all come out. Unfortunately, he timed something just a little bit wrong. Things don't work the way he planned, and as he's trying to get down to safety in the core, Egros actually merges with the planet as the supernova arrives and kills all life. But doesn't really kill all the life, because what happens instead is it all sort of merges into him, and it becomes this living bioorganism planet, with him as sort of the primary intelligence. Thor and Galactus are there at this point in 228. Realize what happened as they listen to this story is what drove Ego actually mad. And so for the safety of the galaxy, they're like super powerful planet, completely crazy, not much we can do. So Galactus straps a rocket onto him from his ship, like one of his ship's thrusters, and points him out of the galaxy to just sort of send him where he can't hurt anybody. <laughs> And and that's the end. There's also yeah. a, a coda to this for uh, for Marvel fans, where Fire Lord, who was the Herald of Galactus for a while, and then was a hero in the MCU, uh, the Marvel Universe as well, is relieved of being Galactus's Herald when Thor convinces Galactus to take the shell of the Destroyer from Asgard and use that as his Herald instead of Fire Lord. Yes. There you go. Unnecessary oh. note, but just yeah. in case anybody's like, how could you not mention that in 228? <laughs> we had a change so. in the Herald of Galactus, yes. Yes. Important things. Uh, these were some interesting books. These were, uh, you know, we're going to talk about it a little bit later, I guess. But the this, this was some of the coolest art that I saw. Specifically, the the Jack Kirby art in 132 and 133. These are, this, this was, this was quite something. The pictures are the panels that had ego in it were just quite something as, as the living planet specifically I'm talking. Yep. And the fact that he's, his art is so colorful and so just fluid and everything that when he's doing something like ego, it's crazy to look at Jack Kirby because he's he he looks like the straightest arrow that you've ever seen, right? You know, Jim Starlin draws trippy stuff in the in the Warlock books we'll look at later. But he also was just kind of, you know, he he was a hippie. He looked like a hippie. <laughs> it's obvious that Jack Kirby did not have to get high to do this stuff, but his stuff looked like he was on acid, you know? Uh -huh. Um it was it's just so amazing. And the that panel at the end of, of 132 that I mentioned earlier, I think is just one of the coolest uses of sort of a different medium that you see in comics at this time. Because very rarely did comics artists take the time to do anything like that. Because they are getting paid a page rate, and for the most part, they can't afford to spend time doing a collage or doing something like that that's going to be more time-consuming. Um but you could tell that Kirby, at a certain point, he's more about testing himself and testing the art form than just getting paid, you know. And it and it really works because it 
it really leaves an impression. If you, oh, absolutely. if you get it, if if you get a chance to see that book, it, these books are in Marvel Unlimited. So if you do have a a subscription, you can look at these books and you can see yep. see the the whole the whole the whole book is great. Like I love I love the look of Thor in these books too because he he is the quintessential classic Thor that I think of when I, when I think of Thor, this is kind of what I expect him to look like, uh, you yep. know, and, and he just, he looks great. And, and then to be like on this living planet and stuff and see some of the things as he's like going into the black galaxy and he sees, sees the ego for the first time. And then when he's on the planet and it, and it changes around him and stuff, it's, it, it it's quite something. Yep. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. the The art is cool. The art is is clean. I will say that one of the reasons why people get grumpy at Sinot is that he there there are some people who say he erased more of Jack Kirby's art than he than he inked, and that may be true because Sinot wanted to get stuff done, and so a lot of times he would just. Are you oh. talking about Sinot, or are you talking about Vince Coletta? Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, and that's awesome. Um, let me just see—is this? Because you have Coletta as the anchor for. Look at you! Look at you correcting me to make sure I get my references right on artists. I'm, yeah, absolutely. No, Vince Coletta. Um, it, so the the crazy thing about the art, and I agree, it looks great, but it does also probably not look as good as most Kirby art to this time, because Coletta was known for taking an eraser to a lot of Jack Kirby's stuff because Kirby yeah. had pretty detailed pencils and Coletta just wanted to get things done. So he would sort of ink it how he wanted. And a lot of times, especially like the backgrounds and stuff like that, if you look at the Kirby crackle, as it's called, like the background radiation and stuff in these, it's not nearly as intense or as complex as it is when somebody else inks it. Yeah, and or when or when Kirby inks it himself. So yeah, it's uh most of the foreground characters like you know like Thor and the Regellians and whatever he's he does fine on I guess. But a lot of the the technology and stuff like that he just didn't have didn't have any interest in doing all of it. So so I'm so glad the, you like the art though. I I did the, I, I you know I. I might have a reputation of not enjoying some of the like classic artists uh, and, and, and because, because it's sometimes difficult to follow a little bit. Uh, sorry, George Perez, but this, I, I did really, really enjoy the, the art in, in, in particular 132 and 133, the, the Jack Kirby art. I thought, I thought it would look fantastic. And like the other thing is the 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 Regellian recorder guy was was great yeah. too because like he looked like a like a robot and like it yes. was it was just sort of like I don't know it just it was like you you could just look at it and even without reading you'd know hey here's like real Thor and here's this like android automaton thing that is with him because because even without reading it you could just tell because of how it looked that it was like 
always like straight, you know, he, no slouching, no movement, really. It was just sort of there (laughs) and doing things. I, I think, I mean, this is, you know, 10 years before C-3PO, but he's very C-3PO in the way he acts and, and and, you know, there's just a droll, there's a drollness to him that just is very, you could, if, if somebody told me Lucas based C-3PO off of the, one of the Regellian recorders, I would not be surprised. I have no evidence that's the case, but it would surprise me. So, so. Anything Anyways. else? Anything else on these Thor books, or should we move on and talk about yeah. the Avengers? I, I think the main thing to keep in mind going into the movie is we all know that Ego is just a guy who's turned into a planet by a, a you know an experiment gone wrong during a solar flare. He's absolutely not, say, a celestial being or a god or anything like that. Or Star Lord's father. He is he's absolutely not anybody's father that we know of. No. <laughs> he is he is 100% just a living planet that kind of wanders in and gets in trouble and is generally a uh, a pest to the universe. So, anyway, he he is mad though. It in both in both cases he does yes. seem a little bit on the not so not so straight no. and narrow there. No. He, uh, he is trouble in all cases that I will that I will give him. All right, let's move so on. Let's let's move on to the Avengers. We've got Avengers one twelve to one fifteen, and then we pick the story back up in issues one twenty to one twenty four. Yep. So I wanted to get these because we hadn't really done any Avengers from around this area. We've done some Avengers at the very beginning. Like we read a few of those, and you and you hated them, and we read some Avengers later, and I think those went better. Yes. But these are from sort of the the middle years. This is after Kirby and and Lee had left. We're in sort of the that period where Marvel's kind of trying to refind its footing, and a lot of these young guys are coming in and sort of transforming things. So. We'll see what you think of these. We've got <laughs> like what eight issues, nine issues, written by Steve Englehart, penciled by Bob Brown. There's a number of different anchors, but Mike Esposito and Don Heck did some of it at least. Colored by Petra Goldberg and the early books, George Russo's on the later ones. Uh, Artie Simic did the lettering all through. So Brown is a very workmanlike sort of a, an artist. It's not going to probably knock your socks off, but it's also always going to be solid. The anchors as well. And then Englehart at this point was a relatively established writer because now he's been doing this for about four years. He's worked his way up to working on Avengers, which at that time in Marvel, you got the better books as you got to be Probably a big known. deal at, the, at this point. So not just anybody gets to write Avengers, exactly. So we start out in issue 112 with the Avengers facing off against an African god, uh, while Mantis and the shadowy figure that's with her plot to join the Avengers. Um, there's some points here where it's a little bit uh, always uncomfortable seeing some of these African tribes and the way that they're represented, 
But the overall conceit, which was that there would still be African gods, just like there are Norse gods and there are Greek gods running around, actually made perfect sense. So that there are, and this is actually something I almost wish Marvel had experimented with more, would be that there's all these different mythologies and all these different sorts of uh, sources they could be getting additional characters from. But they, they only use a few of them normally. Um, issue 113 then, a huge issue for the team, as it's the first time that Vision and Scarlet Witch make their relationship with each other public. We're going to find that that doesn't go over well with some people. Um, they end up fighting off anti-android suicidal bigots, and in the process, Thor and Iron Man actually find out that they have actually known each other's secret identities for a long time, and neither of them wanted to embarrass the other one evidently by telling them, so they've just kept pretending that they didn't know. Because there's a, there's a point where one of them has to leave and take over the operation on the vision, and the other one has to go out and fight. And they just kind of pass, and they're like, yes. wait, uh, wait. Donald, Donald yeah. Blake has to leave, and he, like, asks Tony Stark to just sort of hang out and help and help the help the vision and stuff like this that's going on and, yep. and that and uh, yep. while while he Start goes to... and gets thor and and, yep. and deals with what's going on outside yep. i think i think tony says something like if uh, if you happen to see thor back where i left iron man see if he can maybe help some folks out or whatever <laughs> so yep. anyway but uh but that was kind of interesting um the next issue then, Mantis and her companion, actually revealed as the swordsman, uh, appear to have betrayed the Avengers, only to in the end actually help them defeat the Lion God, who has reappeared once again and was plotting to take out uh, the Avengers for the various indignities that he'd suffered a couple issues previous. The swordsman after this is actually granted membership on the team, while Mantis actually declines because she says she only wants to stay with the team so that she can be there with her man. So I'm, I'm sure you, you enjoyed that part. Um, <laughs> these, these, these first issues then end with 115 where Mantis and the Avengers head out to England and they end up fighting a group of troglodytes, as they're called, at an enchanted castle. Their adversaries actually turn out to be the descendants of, pe of peasants who had been driven underground by a murderous king who was, like, hunting them. And in the end, Mantis's empathy and the quick arrival of the British National Health Service and socialized medicine saved the day. So, yep, it was, that was, it was that an was interesting the thing that, that was the thing that happened. And they were going there to find the Black Knight, who apparently yeah. is MIA, and they were trying to figure out where where the black knight was it wasn't like him not to answer eventually so they went to yeah. they so. they went uh to to england to try and figure out what, what what was going on accidentally found a bunch of of peasants who'd been like driven underground and their their generations of them had lived hidden under mm -hmm. the castle afraid of the royalty so anyway probably best to not think too much about that but uh, second series of books the Avengers face off against the Zodiac. And if you remember, we've seen the Zodiac before, back in the day, uh, fighting out against Moon Knight, fighting against some other folks. Results in this battle that sort of spans the better part of two complete issues, 
and ends with Mantis injured and unconscious at the mansion healing, while the other adventurers are sent away on a spaceship trap. So they go into this warehouse and start fighting, and it turns out the whole warehouse is actually a spaceship, and it closes up, there's a force field around it, and then it shoots it off shoots into space. Shoots them off into space, yeah. So there's literally this warehouse-looking thing that has got these big, like, um, space shuttle booster rocket things underneath it, and it's going off into space. Yep. Did not a bit, look... A bit ridiculous-looking, actually. Did not look aerodynamic at all, but <laughs> I guess it did what it did. So, um... A series of betrayals then result in Libra from the Zodiac actually coming to the rescue of Avengers in, a, in, in one of the Zodiac spaceships. Um, and after a huge final battle, he actually reveals himself, Libra, to actually be Mantis's father. Mantis doesn't believe this, and she's like, I'll kill you for this. How cruel of you to say something like that. But then in 123, we actually get some more of her backstory in which we find out her mother was actually killed by her uncle, who was angry that she had married a, a white man. Um, this was sort of in um, Vietnam back in the early 70s, right? During the war or after the war. Um, she was raised by monks who also care for her blind father. Uh, he was blinded during the attack that killed his wife. She doesn't believe any of this story, but the swordsman does, and he actually takes off to take vengeance on the man who killed Mantis' mother, who awkwardly was his former employer. All this leads back to the temple where Mantis was originally raised, with when which the Avengers find slain priests, a dead gangster, and a creature called the Star Stalker. The Stalker is actually this planet-level threat that had been essentially ready to destroy the Earth, but had been imprisoned by the priests of Pama, who are ancestors of the Kree that were sent to sort of control these, these creatures. With the priests killed by the gangster, the Starstalker had escaped, and only Mantis's discovery of its weakness saved the day as she realized that Vision's heat vision could actually destroy it. And that's kind of where it ends. But the main thing for, for her here is she still doesn't believe what what um her father is saying and in fact she has implanted memories that make her believe that she was raised in the streets and learned her martial arts and everything else other ways and he's like no you were taught by the priests and you have all these other powers and everything else so we need more books to this so this is our this is our introduction to mantis but we're not even getting to the celestial Madonna stage of everything or any of this, and I, I feel very bad that I don't have a, a, a larger palette, for you to understand Mantis, because this is one of the most messed up characters in in the Marvel universe, and I don't feel I really was able to give you the full, sort of like expression of that yet. I mean, it's it's weird we get. In the, in the early books, there was almost no mention. Like, the first couple books, basically Mantis and this shadowy figure are talking. And it's like two panels of an entire of an entire book. And, and you don't really figure out what they're doing, why they're doing it, until, mm -hmm. until almost the end of, of, the, uh, of that first set of books. And, and 
I'm like, this doesn't seem like that much of a character, but you get into the second set of books when they're facing off against the Zodiac and, and, and like in between there was some other things that went on and the swordsman was kind of trying to prove himself to be a, a legitimate, like Avenger and all this sort of thing. And Mm -hmm. she was just sort of there and like, you couldn't necessarily tell that she had powers, but you, kind of felt like she did and and like to what extent would they get used and 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 you really started to see like she seems like she's actually quite a badass actually and and like it it it's it's really weird because yeah they're just there's a lot going on there but it feels like there is a lot more like like we're peeling the layers off an onion and we're only like two or three layers down and we got like a dozen or, or two dozen more to go through. Yeah. I think this is one of those where I like to start at the beginning to kind of get you that, that sort of, here's the origin, here's the introduction, you know, the first appearance. And in this case, that might not have been the best plan. I might've, the problem is where to start that wouldn't have you confused out of your mind. I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> Let's just say there's there's a lot of mantis to to talk about if you decide you want to look into it, but uh, these books though overall though, I I do think were interesting. Uh, one of the things that I really liked was the way they handled Vision and the the Scarlet Witch's relationship, and you know the the fact that when that was made public, they, you know they they like. We're trying to save the Statue of Liberty or something. And at some point, one of them had to save the other. And then they kissed. And people saw it. And they were aghast. Yeah. Because you've got a, a mutant kissing an android. And so suddenly then you've got this guy who's like, you know, what what will happen now? Ne- next, all androids will have, you know, will will have the ability to get rights and then suddenly we'll yeah. all be subservient to androids and and it was and they had it, it this was interesting weird, yeah they had this weird like this guy was cat calling scarlet witch talking about how she needed a real man and it just yep. just kind of disgusting stuff too at, yep. at the same at the same way but it i it does feel like there was like it probably was rooted in a little bit of reality I mean, I can't. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, this would be, you know, at the time you had people, people who were still, you know, protesting probably against interracial marriage. You know, gay rights wouldn't even be on on the agenda for most people even thinking about it. But any of those sorts of things, you have the X Men at this time dealing with sort of that whole idea of hating people who are different and the like, uh, and. I love that one of Englehart's lines that Black Panther actually says in issue 113, talking about the kind of the leader of the other side. He said, the demagogue is, he said, he builds emotional arguments on illogical premises. All of his conclusions are wrong, which must be why he's the vision's natural enemy. <laughs> and I'm like, I love that, you know, because the vision's so reasonable and logical. And this guy that hates him because he's an android is completely the opposite. He's just totally illogical and driven by 
by emotion and and lacking in reason and so it uh it was it was pretty it was pretty well done i thought that was you know well well mantis is sort of when we're talking about i think the most interesting part of it was that and then that little thing with thor and iron man for people who read comics regularly it's weird little things like that where you get these these like indications of things going on in the lives of the characters that's just something that hadn't happened before you know like oh that's cool they fi- they f- they finally realized it or have decided to stop pretending around each other as they've been teammates for you know a decade or whatever so so i have a question who is the swordsman because this was my first uh first time i've ever seen the swordsman like Swordsman's this, been along for a long time. Is this somebody important? Is this somebody that uh, is an sadly, integral part to 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 Marvel Comics? Sadly, no. He's really not. He's a sort of a C-level kind of character who's moved between being a villain and a hero a few times. He's been a, an Avenger. He's been a West Coast Avenger. He actually is in the MCU, just as a note. Because he is the guy who dates Hawkeye's mom, like like young Hawkeye, uh, in the Hawkeye television show. The one that they go to steal the sword from, that is is Jacques Duquesne, who's, who's the swordsman. So... He does he does exist in the in the MCU already, but not a not a really key character. Just somebody who's been around and he has histories with a bunch of of other um, with a bunch of other characters. So it, it just sort of surprised me because it, this is like a character I was not familiar with at all, and it, the the way he was kind of portrayed is that he was like this villain that I think had even gone up against some of the Avengers before. And then he's like, all of a sudden he shows up and he's just sort of helping the Avengers and suddenly just wham, he's now an Avenger. Yeah. There wasn't, it doesn't feel like there is a very stringent uh, application process or background check to get into the Avengers sometimes. No, there really is probably not stringent enough. He he was, though, at this point, he turns into a pretty good guy for a while. And in fact, looping back again into the MCU, he ends up being killed by Kang or one of Kang's... Is it Ramatut? By, by Kang or one of his versions defending Mantis uh, at some point in the relatively near future during the whole Celestial Madonna thing. Which also swings in Kang and everybody else and stuff like that. It's a whole thing. But I would say if you think of him as kind of Hawkeye with a sword. <laughs> okay. It's it's relatively close. He had kind so, of an Errol Flynn sort of vibe to me. He absolutely does. They even I they talk about that some. I mean he he the character's patterned on Errol Flynn. And yeah. Absolutely. So, it was, it was interesting stuff. So, then my last point was just kind of the, uh, when did comics get so political, Dwayne? What, what is going on? All I wanted was, was to read a nice, 
event, you know, superhero comic story, and here's all this politics stuff that was in it. What yeah. is going on? <laughs> They've always been that, as you know. It that is what my statement is. They've always yeah. been that way. Um, we just didn't necessarily maybe notice it for a while, but especially with guys like Engelhart, oh my god, all of his stuff, you know. I mean, it's 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 constantly something or other and and the, the whole the the national health service coming to the rescue was that was the best though it's <laughs> classic Engelhart. anyway um well, let's move on to the last story because i think i think out of the three stories i think this one was my favorite this is strange tales number 178 to 181 yeah man yeah so these should have been your favorite books, in my opinion, because these are some of my favorite books ever. I absolutely love the Strange Tales uh, Warlock stories and a lot of the ones we're going to be reading in a couple of weeks as well. So all of these Jim Starlin books, they are they're not a quick read, as you might have noticed, because well, Jim Starlin not. likes his words. I mean, he there's does. a lot of text in these. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lot of concepts because it's all about, like, religion and revelation and all this other stuff. So, it's only four books, but the recap takes a little while, so bear with me here. So, we start out with a really long recap uh, where Adam Warlock uh, kind of has his story told from beginning to end to catch people up. Because this book was actually the first reappearance of Warlock after a little bit of time away from comics. After that recap, we find Adam Warlock sort of standing at, with a woman running toward him pursued by hunters, and he tries to help her and save her. The hunters actually manage to kill her, though, and when they go away, he then wants to follow them, he resurrects her to ask about her killers, and she tells him about the Magus and his corrupt Universal Church of Truth. Warlock quickly learns that the Magus is, in fact, another aspect of himself, and he starts to search to try and find this other part of himself and defeat him or do whatever he needs to do. He relatively quickly ends up captured by the church, ends up in a cell, uh, and tells his fellow prisoners this story of Grack and, ba and Bach, and essentially the idea of somebody's always going to be the leader, and the leader's always going to have power, and the power's always going to corrupt them. And if one leader falls, then the guy who defeats him usually turns into someone just as terrible. So don't let anybody lead you. Just lead yourselves, right? At that point, he then refuses to lead, re, lead a revolt because he's like, no, I just told you, you don't need a leader, right? But then he leads their revolt just by wandering around and making sure it works. <laughs> he defeats the main captain of the ship, Autoclitus, uh, by allowing his soul gem to steal the captain's soul. And then Adam and the, uh, the troll Pip sort of zoom away from this ship. He'd met Pip when he was in the slave pits. Um, and head for the church homeworld. There they're invited into an obvious trap by the sultry church leader called the Matriarch. Uh, if you think of her, you can kind of think of like the Pope, 
only sort of like the looks and mannerisms of Marlene Dietrich circa cabaret times, right? <laughs> um, okay. Warlock, it, <laughs> she's, she is very weird. Warlock actually finds out the Magus is not an aspect of himself that's been cut off or a twin or something. It's actually his future self. After which he's then trapped again um, by the matriarch and put on trial. As Warlock is convicted and shows his contempt for the Magus' court by blowing pretty much everything up, Pip heads off to get a beer and ends up meeting the now familiar green girl who, uh, who is determined to kill Adam Warlock. We have not got a name for her. We don't know who she is yet, but I bet you can probably guess considering where this episode's been going. So hold, stick with me here. After stealing the judge's soul, Warlock actually ends up regretting that he's done that again because he's trying not to steal souls. That's kind of his, <laughs> his thing. And then he ends up in front of the matriarch. She sends him out to be re-educated or indoctrinated. And the last issue then is full of this weird clown stuff and yeah. just crazy, I don't even know what to call it. There's, it's sort of him being re-educated and it's sort he, of, you, you got he, something? No, so he's being re-educated and like the people that he's seeing in this like re-education exercise, he realizes like in his head that he's being manipulated and trying to be indoctrinated into this so he looks at them as clowns but in the entire book you just see these clouds talking to the adam warlock all clowns and and he's like he's just acting all normal like oh this is a thing i'm talking to clouds but it's 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 his mind basically saying these guys are all clowns you shouldn't listen to them and then he becomes a clown for a while as well so yes. that's not good. <laughs> it's so, so it's so weird. It, it's pretty weird. We find out though, as she's trying to find him, because they're Pip and this green girl, who we find out is Gamora, the most dangerous woman in the galaxy, actually are stalking the palace looking to try and find Warlock. And they find him, they all get away, they turn a corner, and they find the true big bad the real live Magus, who had kind of looked like Bob Ross for most of the first probably three issues because he was disguising himself so that Warlock wouldn't know what's going on so much. And then he takes off his disguise and now he looks just like Adam Warlock, only Adam Warlock is sort of golden and he is more purple. And that's how you can tell yeah. him apart. He, he's like sitting on a throne just like, all right. I'm going to get you guys now. And, that, and that's where it ends. That's where it ends. Not really. It continues, but that's right, where I had that, you end. That, that's so, where, that's yep. where this, where that's where this set of books ends it. So there you go. So, so you like these. I did. This was, this was by far my favorite story of the week. There is just like first that introduction of Adam Warlock was great. Because I did not know who Adam Warlock really was at all. And um, we, we've read bits and like in the first set of books that we read for the very first Guardians of the Galaxy movie, Adam Warlock was there. He was a member of the team, but I really didn't know anything about him. And so this, mm -hmm. this like first 
like six or eight pages was a recap of like who Adam Warlock was and like how he came to be like against the church and all this sort of thing. And it was like a recap of like four or five different sets of books that, that, you know, different book, uh, little story runs in, in several different mm-hmm. books to kind of bring you up to speed. But I knew this was like a Gamora story. So I was like, okay, so where's Gamora at? And then there's like this girl right at the beginning and she's wearing all green, by the way, the, 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 the woman that he first sees, she is in all green that gets hunted by the, the, these hunters and then ends up dying right away. I'm like, wait a minute. Is that Gamora? Did she just die? Like five pages into this story? Is she like going to get resurrected and suddenly become green or something? It just didn't make any sense to me. And, and I just like, ke- I kept going and, um, you know, I'm like, okay, so now we've got this Magus and he's like some version of Adam Warlock. And so the story was kind of interesting and the artwork is very trippy throughout all of this too, by the way. And, um, yes. you know, seeing all the lengths that the matriarch was going through to try and first kill Adam Warlock. And then she's like convinced that, no, I didn't, I shouldn't kill him. I need to control him and indoctrinate him and get him be, be get, get control of him. Because if I can get control of him, then I get control of the Magus. And then I have complete control of the church of the universal truth. And, uh, that whole fourth book with the clowns and stuff. I, I then, you know, in between their book three, actually see Gamora and I'm like, okay, now this starts to make sense where Gamora plays into this. But this was this, there was a lot here, a lot of words, but it, it was, it was interesting. And like I said, it was a character I didn't know much about. And now I feel like I've got a lot more uh, info on. Yeah. Yeah, these early ones do turn out to be Adam Warlock stuff. The the other thing that's going to be awkward that I had not considered is that four-page, like, recap you read. That recaps, in many cases, the stuff we're reading two weeks from now. Because <laughs> the story of the High Evolutionary is, in many ways, the story of the early days of Warlock. Okay. So, we'll see, we'll see, some, we'll see some crossover on that, actually. Um... But if you wanted to continue this story, by the way, Strange Tales moves to doing something else. I think it's Doctor Strange after this. And this Strange Tales 181 then finishes up or continues in Warlock number nine. So Warlock actually published from one to eight and then it quit. And then a couple years or whatever later, it came back with Starlin in Strange Tales for like four issues. And then they didn't make another Warlock number one. They just recontinued the Warlock series from before with number nine. Okay. I was wondering where, because this is the, if, if you read this on Marvel Unlimited, 178 to 181 are the last four books that Strange Tales has in there. Oh, there's, there's no more Strange Tales in there. So it was like, I don't know There are more Strange Tales. I, I was like, I don't know where to go if I wanted to continue this story. Warlock number nine. There you go. There you go. So, um, but yeah, 
So I love these. I also think it's interesting that Starlin is obsessed with religion and with the power of churches and stuff like that. His Dreadstar independent books actually focus on much the same sorts of stuff in a lot of ways. But one of the interesting things about this is he repeatedly looks at Warlock as this sort of Christ-like type of figure. And I think it's interesting that in the middle of that one book, when he's in the, the jail, he actually tells that story. And it's very close to like Jesus telling a parable. Right. Right. And I think that's why it's in there is he's actually really trying to make these conscious sort of sort of connections between Warlock and Christianity. And makes sense. You know, so you had a question about the gem. Yeah. Bring it on. So, what is your so, question, sir? So you talked about this soul gem that, that Adam Warlock has and that he basically yep. um kills several people by like stealing their soul throughout this. You um Yes. What is that? Is is that an infinity stone or is that some other stone or gem or what that, exactly is this? That is yes. So originally it was it. The soul gem was the soul gem. It was the only one. Okay. So when this when this came out, essentially there was a there was a cosmic cube, right, that was being used by Captain America and stuff been no indication that it had anything to do with infinity stones or stolen gems or anything like that. The soul gem was invented for essentially Adam Warlock. And it is at this point, essentially this weapon that, that sort of can steal that essence of a person and it both empowers and sort of corrupts Warlock when he uses it. Right? So at a certain point, though, as Warlock faces off against Thanos and the sort of universe expands, they make additional stones. So it starts out with just this one, and then over time you get additional. I think there's one more that comes in, and then we find out about two more of them in a story. I think the Gardener story from like 78 or whatever, which is one of my favorites. It's a it's like a Marvel two-in-one or something with, with uh, Adam Warlock and Spider-Man. It is not until 1990, though, that you actually hear the term Infinity Stones for the first time. Okay. So the, the actual stones themselves kind of take on this mythology as they move along. But right now, it's, it's Adam Warlock's stone. It looks like the one Vision has a little yeah. bit, although bigger. But Vision Stone is just Vision Stone right now. It's like, um, I would say if you ask most people in the early 70s, the Vision's little little diamond, red diamond in his head, is used for like focusing his, his blasts, his mental or, or optical blasts. It has nothing to do with being any sort of, you know, like soul stone or or whatever the whatever, mind stone, whatever it is that, that it ends up being in the MCU. So, yeah. So for right now, it's just its own thing. It is just the soul gem. 
There you go. Excellent that question. Answer, that that answers that. I I was a little, I w- I was curious about that because I wasn't sure if there was a connection there or not. You should have you read those gardener books. They're so good. Oh my goodness, they're great. Um. But anyway, outside of that, but I mean, yeah, the again, the takeaway is at this point, we don't really know who she is, but um, Gamora is dangerous. She's green. She's cosmic. Of all the characters, really, that are adapted in the MCU for the Guardians, she's one of the ones that really changes the least. Yeah, she's, she's Ill, ill-tempered and dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> and and that is what she remains. So um and then also I think with Mantis, that's the other important thing is Mantis is completely different over time. But she does change because she does get her antenna at a certain point. They change her origin a bunch of times, etc. So she's very different as well. You know, because obviously she has no memory of or any connection to Earth in the MCU right she's ego's kid from another planet so it's uh it's another one where they've changed a lot of things but her history is crazy enough that that's sort of that that might be a more simple history a, a simpler uh any anything simpler than and less messy so um there we go so we kind of talked a little bit about these. You 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 think you like that uh, the strange tales? I like that you're starting to maybe appreciate some Jack Kirby art. That's pretty cool. I I wasn't. I, I haven't said that I didn't like Jack Kirby art. This was oh. it was just it was just specifically this week. I, I I really appreciated the art that 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 Jack Kirby did in these books. Very cool. So you have a worst part of the week in here. Bring it on, man. What do you got? Technically, you asked. So the worst part of the week to me was <laughs> these books are all, all of them, very, very wordy. Uh, a lot of the pa- panels, multiple text bo- bubbles, which meant at times I inadvertently read things out of order. It, it, it happens. Yep. Uh it was taking me in excess of 30 minutes to read one of these books. And, and what ends up happening is when I'm reading books that have a lot of words in them, I don't tend to get a chance to enjoy the art as much as I would like because I'm focused on trying to read all the words and understand what's going on. And the art just ends up kind of being there. So I would I would tell you that there was... The, the, the other thing I would say is like... Some of these weren't very great introductions to characters or these characters ended up being a lot more than what we saw in here. And so like Mm -hmm. thinking the, thinking the random woman on the planet that dies was Gamora only to realize two books later that no, that wasn't Gamora. There's actually somebody else. So, um, yes, I, I I guess that was, that was my thing. I want to, I want to, get through the books relatively quickly. I want to be able to appreciate the art. I want to understand what's going on or what I'm supposed to get out of them. And it feels like sometimes with 
some of the older books that it's a little more difficult for me to do those things. Yeah. Which the interesting thing is your, your desires now as someone wanting to be able to do your work for the podcast and still live your life, right? Conflict with the fact that when I was young, books that had more writing, books that took longer. I mean, I felt like I was getting more for my dime. I was getting more for that 50 or 60 cents I was spending on a comic book if, you know, it took longer to get through it. So there were, there was a time back in the 60s and in the 70s where if someone had done a book that had as few words in it as you get to modern ones, people would have complained. Oh, I, 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 took I me could... five minutes to read this comic book. This is a, <laughs> you guys suck, you know? So, yeah. I don't have anything else really for you, though. That, uh, that sort of covers it. We've got a look at three of the characters who are going to be featured in the, in the movie we're watching next week. And now we wander out and take a look and see what we think. So we got an email, uh, actually a couple of them from, from Matthew Turner. Uh, we did the, you know, last week we, we looked at Shazam, uh, the second Shazam movie, Fury of the Gods. Uh, and yep. he wrote in to say, uh, to tell us about it. He said, I haven't seen Shazam one yet, but I really like Shazam two. For me, a 53 year old who loved the Shazam and Isa, Isis, sorry. Isis. Yeah who loved the Shazam and Isis TV shows as a kid and cut my teeth on early 80 comics. It was one of those where I enjoyed watching it in the moment, but when it was over, thinking about it in the hours and days that followed, I really appreciated it even more, and I want to see it again. There were so many fun moments. I loved the unicorn Skittles uh, sequence so much. Taste the rainbow, mothers. (laughs) I won't say the whole word there. That's that's a little uh, inappropriate for 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 small children, I suppose. Yeah. Which he says inappropriate, but also hilarious. Uh, he he also mentioned yeah. that that they that wife and I thought Black Adam was terrible, so bad. Uh, decent story, actors and effects, but the script, directing, editing were were just terrible. So, um, yeah, I think that. I think that, you know, the the sad fact is that the post-mortem right now on Shazam 2 is not good in terms of its box office, its overall critical reception, everything like that. I think it's a movie that's going to do pretty well long-term, though, in terms of people enjoying it and, and it kind of holding up over time. Because I, I also, I, mean, I thought it was fun. I also, how, how do you not know ISIS? Sometimes. I, I, no. That... That I'm 10 sorry, years that separates know. us seems like a gulf that can never be, <laughs> never be, be crossed at some point. So I, I also, you know, Isis, Joanna Cameron, absolutely just wonderful. I loved those shows when I was a kid. Uh, still actually have watched, I have the DVD around here someplace. So it's, uh, it's good stuff. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Matthew, for, for sending those comments in. Really appreciate you uh, reaching out and letting us know your thoughts on on Shazam 2. All right. And with that, 
looking ahead to next week, we're back in in the movies. We're going back to Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two. Yep, I'm actually looking forward to seeing. You know, now we we get that little bit more of an idea of who Ego is in the movie or in the uh, comic books and the like. I haven't rewatched this one more than a couple of times yet, so it's going to be interesting to go back and and watch it a little bit more closely. A lot of these movies, I wasn't thinking about them that much when I watched them the first time. I was just enjoying them, so it's kind of cool to go back and uh, hit it with a more critical eye. So, I've seen the first Guardians of the Galaxy several times. I think this one I, I saw in theaters, but I don't know that I have made it back to actually seeing it again. So this is going to be probably my first rewatch of it. And knowing, you know, kind of where the MCU went before that, and now having a lot better understanding of where it was leading mm-hmm. up to it, along with now some additional context from the comics, I, I feel like I'm going to get a lot more out of this rewatch than, than I maybe did the, the first time I watched this film. Very cool. All right, that's going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. Whether you're new to the podcast or you've been with us from the beginning, we'd love to get your thoughts on the show, on any of the Guardians of the Galaxy books that we read this week, or Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which we'll be talking about next week. You can send us those messages via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com, or you can reach out to us via Twitter. That address is at comicsovertime. Dan, I, I'm looking forward to going back and seeing Guardians of the Galaxy again. Uh, I, I, th- I think I've got a lot of information, and I'm going to be able to really, really sink my teeth into it this time. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun to get back here. Talk about it next week with everybody as well. So looking forward to that. All right. Until next week, everyone, take care. Bye.